Hello and welcome. My name is Simo Frestadius, and I'm the co-director of the Institute for Pentecostal Theology at Regents Theological College. The purpose of the Institute is to be a community of scholars who explore issues relating to the academy, society and the church from a UK and European Pentecostal perspective. During the last weeks and months, the lives and livelihoods of many have been significantly impacted by the global coronavirus pandemic. Therefore, at the Institute, we thought that it was appropriate to discuss the broader topic of Pentecostalism and pestilence in historical perspective with one of our fellows, Dr. John Asher. John is a church historian with a specific interest in the history of Pentecostalism. So it is great to be able to do a short interview with you, John. But before we get into the main topic uh, of this podcast, John, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your main research interests? Hey, Simo. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my job, uh, Regents, is in, in two parts, really. Um, part of my job is uh, to help the honorary historian and the honorary archives team and the librarian to uh, catalogue Regent's fantastic collection of uh, Pentecostal primary sources. Uh, some really unique and terrific items have been collected uh, by Elam over the last 100 years or so to, to help them catalogue it according to the international standard for archival description so that students uh, ministers, uh, external researchers, etc., can uh, search and access that material in an efficient and professional manner. So that's the first part of my job. Second part of my job is I'm writing the the second volume of a two-volume biography of uh, an early Pentecostal leader called Cecil Paul Hill. So Cecil Paul Hill, he was an Eton and Cambridge educated evangelical Anglican landowner who in 1885 uh, with the so-called Cambridge Seven Missionary Group joined the China Inland Mission. Um, C.T. Studd, the famous English cricketer, was also a part of that missionary group. Uh, he was in China for the best part of 15 years, came back in 1900, inherited a fortune and and then used his wealth to um, fund the early Pentecostal movement, really. He had a Pentecostal experience at um, Azusa Street in Los Angeles in, in 1908. He helped pay off the mortgage on that iconic church building. Um, when he came back to the UK, he kind of um, talent spotted and, and funded early Pentecostal ministers and set up the Pentecostal Missionary Union, the PMU, which was really the first proper organized European Pentecostal mission. Um, incidentally, he also kind of talent spotted George Jeffries, uh, the founder of Elam, and gave Jeffries some, some of his early uh, training. So uh, a really important figure. Um, so that's the two parts of my job, the, the archival work and the research for the book. Fantastic. Thank you, John, for all that you are doing. And I believe your, the first volume of, of your two-volume series, your book is coming out in, in the summer, yeah. or I suppose early, early autumn, by, by Brill on Cecil Paul Hill and aspects of early British Pentecostalism. So we look forward to, 
to seeing that being published and, and reading it. As already mentioned, our topic today is Pentecostalism and pestilence in historical perspective. And just to be clear, by pestilence, we mean a highly contagious and fatal disease. John, before we talk about Pentecostals, what comes to your mind from church history more broadly on this topic? Yes, yeah, so th there's two instances that, that come to mind when you ask that question, two contrasting examples. In the one instance, there's a, there's a minister who seemed to act quite recklessly and everything seemed to turn out fine, and another minister who seemed to act very responsibly, but then it went really quite wrong. Uh, so in the first instance, uh, the, the great Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, in 1519, he was uh, taking the waters near Zurich at a sort of spa town place because he was, he was already not very well when the, the Black Death, the plague, hit Zurich. And instead of staying outside of Zurich or leaving Zurich like a lot of ministers did, he went back into Zurich to, to minister to the sick. And so I've always been quite struck by that, by his... His, his courage and his faith, um, his slightly reckless courage, you could say. Uh, and as it turns out, he did catch something. He fell very ill, um, mm. but he recovered um, and wrote his wonderful plague hymn. So the first few stanzas he wrote when he was getting very ill and the final stanza uh, when he was recovering. And I can read you the first part, if you like. So the first, can you sing it? <laughs> I, I won't sing it, but I can read it for you. <laughs> so the first one, uh, help me, O Lord, my strength and rock. Low at the door, I hear death's knock. So that's him when he thinks he's going to die. And then finally, when he realizes he's recovering, but let it come with joy, I'll rise and bear my yoke straight to the skies. So he's not so concerned there, clearly. All right, so the second example. Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, mid-18th century. So Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's in Princeton at the time. He's about to take up the presidency of Princeton. Um, and he is very elated for smallpox. So this was a sort of primitive type of vaccine whereby um, scrapes were taken from the scabs of um, uh, sores or on somebody who had smallpox and these these this dust from the scab was blown into the nostril of somebody who didn't have smallpox in, in order to sort of vaccine vaccinate them so he did this and normally that would work but in edward's case it, it, he actually got very ill and he died so it's just interesting that um you know sometimes when you think you're behaving very responsibly things can't don't go so well and 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 and, um, and sometimes when somebody seems to be behaving very recklessly, it turns out, okay, I would hasten to add, however, that I think if there is a vaccine available, um, by all means, you should, you should take it. There's no need to take risks. Sure. So it's not an argument for acting recklessly. Absolutely not. No. Absolutely <laughs> <Good>. not. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, interesting, interesting historical reflections there. Thank you. Okay. Well, then, historically speaking, um, what kind of diseases would early Pentecostals have faced? So think okay, of the so, early, early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so much more than we face now. Um, I mean, disease was a, a part of life in the early 20th century. 
infant mortality was declining, but uh, was still high. You could get vaccinated for smallpox and rabies, but that was about it until the 1930s. So early Pentecostals faced typhoid, uh, smallpox, of course, malaria, pneumonic plague. Um, yeah, they had all sorts of issues they were facing. Yeah. Mm. You've already referred to vaccines, and at this, as, as we're having this conversation, we are eagerly waiting for an effective vaccine for COVID-19. So how have Pentecostals viewed vaccines and immunization? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it would be great if we could, if they could find the vaccine right soon. Um, okay, so it looks to me like that there were three broad positions that could be taken when it comes to when it came to the to the use of vaccinations and, and really any medical intervention in the past. Um, I think this would be true of all denominations, not just Pentecostals. Firstly, there was the kind of compulsory or safe approach. So that was an, an insistence on using vaccines and uh, medical intervention, medical help. Secondly, was the freedom of conscience approach, which left it up to the individual to make use of vaccination and medicine or not. And thirdly, the radical approach which rejected all vaccines and medical intervention and broadly speaking most people would have fallen into one of those three categories mm -hmm. and where would the pentecostals have fallen in would you say okay well just to be clear nowadays uh Elon missionaries are advised to take all the government recommended vaccines and i'm aware that the assemblies of god recommend the same i mean i can't speak for every pentecostal group but um, that, that is true of Elam and the Assemblies of God, at least. Historically speaking, so there were a few isolated examples of Pentecostals rejecting medical intervention, but this would have been true for other denominations as well, not just the Pentecostals. The one example that comes to mind, uh, a man called Harry Cantell, uh, an early American Pentecostal who was based in London, he had previously been associated with John Alexander Dowie's Zion City group. Dowie was a sort of pre-Pentecostal healing evangelist, uh, and he rejected all medical intervention. Uh, and so Harry was influenced by uh, Dowie, and when he uh, began suffering from appendicitis, he refused medical intervention and he died. But if we look at the earliest and most influential European Pentecostal mission, the Pentecostal Missionary Union, um, we can see that they, they regularly made use of doctors and medicine. Um, that there are examples of prospective missionary candidates being rejected on the basis of failing um, a medical examination. There is one instance of a, a PMU missionary family um, catching smallpox in China in 1915, which resulted in the death of their youngest child, sadly. This does not mean that they had been vaccinated, uh, but it's perhaps not surprising that around about the same time, the PMU Home Council resolved to have all of their student missionaries medically examined before sending them into the missionary field. I think up until then, it had been merely assumed 
that everyone had been vaccinated for smallpox during childhood. But with the death of one of the Swift family, uh, this could no longer be taken for granted. Mm. Well, what about the 1918 influenza pandemic or what is sometimes referred to as the, the Spanish flu? Wrongly yeah, or rightly. Okay. Mm. So, all right. So we, we know that after the outbreak of the war, uh, Cecil Paul Hill, and another leading figure in early British Pentecostalism, Alexander Boddy, did everything that they could to assist in the war effort. So for Paul Hill, that meant uh, things like um, taking the, the body off of his car and mm -hmm. replacing it with an ambulance wagon, uh, interestingly. Um, his country manor, Herbury Hall, was also converted into a Red Cross relief hospital. Now, at the tail end of the war, the grounds of Harbury Hall were used as an isolation camp for soldiers suspected of having influenza. Um, basically, they were social distancing. And for, for Body, his church also became a hospital for wounded soldiers. And there seems to have been an outbreak of influenza there as well in Sunderland. And Body himself seems to have fallen ill, but recovered. Generally speaking, however, early Pentecostals seem to have made as much use of medicine as, as anyone. But crucially, this did not negate their belief that God could heal. Mm. And as well as, I suppose, the concept of Jesus being the healer, early Pentecostals had a very uh, imminent view regarding the return of Christ. They were expecting Christ to come back at any time. So in light of this, <laughs> end times views or their eschatological understandings how have pentecostals viewed pestilence with respect to their eschatology well you know i don't know how i don't know how conscious early pentecostals were of the the 1918 influenza pandemic being a pandemic Clearly, there were, there, when you read the early periodicals that they, they were conscious of a sort of mystery disease afflicting everyone but because disease was so common anyway i i, I don't think I, i'm not convinced that it would have been they would have had the same kind of awareness that we have about uh covid19 because news sources just weren't as prolific um as they are now um but most early pentecostals were premillennial dispensationalists so they would have viewed the world as in a, a state of decline ahead of the second coming of Christ. Um, so I, th they tended to believe it was up to them to convert the world as quickly as possible before this happened. So a pandemic would have given them a greater sense of urgency to do this. Honestly, though, I, I think that pestilence was perhaps less eschatologically significant for Pentecostals than the war itself. Um, Speaking for Paul Hill, he tended to view geopolitical events through the lens of the imperative to mission. Uh, Matthew 24, 14 was understood deterministically. Uh, he would evaluate the advantages or disadvantages that world events posed the mission in a, in a remarkably sober and level-headed manner, actually. Generally speaking, uh, Pentecostals, I think, like most evangelicals, would have believed that God had a morally sufficient reason 
for allowing disease, illness, or in fact any kind of natural evil to occur, even if those reasons were not immediately obvious. Mm. Thank you, John. Well, let's move to kind of the, the current context that we find ourselves in. As a Pentecostal historian and theologian, um, what do you think of some of the material circulating on social media and often from kind of Pentecostal charismatic sources that suggest things like that COVID-19 is a sign of the end times and perhaps even, even God's judgment? What do you think mm. we should make, make of such material? Mm, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, so, like, well, clearly for 30,000-odd people in this country, it has been their end time. And for hundreds of thousands of people around the world, it's been their end time as well. Um, I, I don't know how helpful it is to speculate too much about these things, to spend too much time um, thinking about it. Um, the, the imperative uh, to, to mission and evangelism, uh, to, to loving people, um, is is the same all all the time, um, r- regardless of whether or not there's a um, a pandemic or not. So I, I think I think my message to people would be to concentrate on 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 doing those things rather than becoming too um, focused on on uh, uh, looking for the signs of the end times. It, 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 maybe it is. Uh, maybe it isn't, but it certainly has been for 30,000 odd people in this country already. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And I guess following, following from that, in light of the examples that we focused on in, in this podcast, as well as the wider history of the church, what specific advice would you give to pastors of Pentecostal and charismatic churches who are leading during the coronavirus pandemic and indeed who are now thinking about what church will look like in a post-coronavirus world yeah so i think it's really interesting because there's reports in the news of some church uh numbers doubling because um uh leadership teams are turning to um uh, digital uh, mediums for um uh, broadcasting their services putting the message out there and even uh, holding small groups and prayer meetings i was speaking to a friend up in york recently and he said his prayer meeting had doubled in size because they had started holding it online maybe people find it easier to uh, sit in um, on a digital in a, in a sort of digital platform than they would do uh, irl in in real life because maybe there's not the pressure to kind of participate in the same way and and that's not necessarily a bad thing it may even be that there is almost a kind of revival um happening or about to happen um for the church but it's just a kind of digital one um my advice to um pastors would be to take seize this opportunity to to maybe upskill a bit and invest a little bit more time into uh, the websites that's really the shop window for the church um, uh, into uh, putting out some sermons online into using some of the software that's available now to have meetings online um, and uh, and maybe try to to get on board with what god is doing 
in um, uh, in the digisphere, if that's such a place. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't take much. It, it just takes a computer and a camera, right? And um, and they could uh, really be reaching um, a, a lot more people. Dr. John Asher, thank you so much for your insights. And thank you all for listening to this podcast by the Institute Pleasure. for Pentecostal Theology on Pentecostalism and pestilence in historical perspective. And um, goodbye for now.